These are the oldest stories, online at oldeststories.net. We've looked at a number of great Sumerian cities. Mighty Uruk, of course, home of great kings, champions, and empires, as well as Ur, another major player in regional politics. We touched on Nippur, the major cult center, and Eridu, the region's oldest city. And even mighty Kish has had a mention as the home of the oldest surviving writing. So many of these places have their historic world firsts and great epic adventures. But then we get to Lagash. It is a pretty big city for sure by the standards of the age, but when was it ever hegemon over the region? And what world first does it have to show for itself? Lagash, you see, is the second fiddle to the major cities of Sumer, the Chicago to the New York and L.A. of Uruk and Ur, a nice place for sure, but never really at the top of any heap. But what Lagash does have is a substantial amount of records, dating back to the early dynastic period of around 2500 BCE, allowing us to reconstruct the history better than anywhere else in the world until the rise of the Akkadian Empire. For sure, that best is still pretty patchy, but for a moment at least, we can hang up our oversized heroes and overactive gods, and we can start a multi-episode series about Lagash and its oldest reliably attested history. Lagash is situated at the lower west end of the Tigris River, making it one of the closest cities to modern Iran and the ancient Elamites who lived there at the time. Who were the Elamites? Why, they were a major civilization that lasted for over 2,000 years who lived right next to Sumer in southwest Iran. They had cities and farming and nomads, just like the Sumerians, as well as a unique language. They are the second civilization to develop writing, actually beating the Egyptians slightly, both having borrowed the idea from their Sumerian neighbors. They were a major regional power for actually slightly longer than the Mesopotamians broadly defined, and yet we know almost nothing about them. And the only reason I can see for this is a lack of scholarly interest. Nearly all we know is from a few Elamite fragments and Sumerian records. This is just a lament of ignorance, though. The Elamites will continue to have only a fringe impact on our story for now. Lagash now. Lagash goes back into the mists of history. Its origin is lost, and it appears fully formed in the first fleeting mentions of it. Its local god is Ninurta, the exceedingly violent warrior, though he was worshipped under the name Ningursu. I can also find very little remarkable about the physical conditions of the city itself, except to say that it was largely unexceptional among major Sumerian cities, possessing walls, major temple and palace complex, and a bunch of housing, of course, for the probably few tens of thousands of inhabitants. It would have had a major port that traded up and down the river system and a class of scribal bureaucrats managing the formal portions of the economy. It had a number of suburbs. It wasn't the only city in the region, but it generally dominated those suburbs and kept them economically and politically dependent. 
The story of Lagash, at least as far as we are concerned, begins pretty close to exactly 2500 BCE in the city of Kish. Currently, Kish is ruled by a figure known as King Meselem, a name which doesn't actually appear on the Sumerian kings list, but is known for sure from his own inscriptions and from the role he's about to play in Mesopotamian inner city relations. At the time, he had a mini-empire in which he had taken the city of Lagash, already a mature municipality, as a loose sort of vassal city. Now, for as long as anyone can remember, Lagash has been at war with the nearby city of Umma, supposedly over water rights to a certain canal in the region of Gu'edin, though this multi-generational border dispute was surely fueled by a deeper enmity that outstripped the mere matter of water rights. In any case, King Meselem decided to step in and negotiate between the two parties, and he took an admirably American approach to it, simply decreeing where the boundaries should be, setting up a stone marker, and sending inscribed battle maces to each party to remind them of what was backing up that decree. For some reason, however, the people of Umma got it into their heads that the overlord of Lagash was not quite the neutral representative he presented himself as, and in short order, the Ummites had knocked over the stone marker and resumed the fight. Lagash had a long history of rulers, or at least we presume they did, since the city probably wasn't an anarcho-syndicalist commune for the first few centuries of its existence. But we have only two names until a generation after the failed peace overture of King Meselem, and neither have any particular deeds attached to those names. But when we do finally get to King ur first king of the first dynasty of Lagash, we see an explosion of record-keeping, relatively speaking. And indeed, his dynasty is the principal source of objective historical information for the 200 years preceding the Akkadian Empire. So good job, ur Nansha, for ensuring that your line would be remembered forever, while Umma is the big loser of Sumerian history, managing to fall into obscurity until Lugal Zagazi, the Sumerian king that saw the total conquest of the Sumerians by the Semitic Akkadians, and who is, in any case, mostly remembered as a king of Uruk. But we're getting ahead of ourselves here. Just remember that Lagash is the good guys, and Umma is the bad guys. So, Ernansha comes to power in some sort of military coup, reasoning that the line of priest kings that previously ruled the city simply weren't getting it done, and that if Lagash was going to finally win this hundred-year-long war, some major changes were going to be required. That change was a massive public works project, including canals and temples, the former being most important since it would have increased the amount of production the land around Lagash was capable of, as well as easing transport. At around the same time, we have evidence of a massive upswing in economic activity in the region, including trade with distant Dilmun, the Sumerian name for India. Now, were the canal building and facilities expansion projects responsible for the increased economic activity, 
Or was the increased trade the thing that made it possible for the government of Lagash to afford all these nice things? Or was it a little bit of both? No way to tell for sure, but what is clear is that Ur Nansha left Lagash much stronger than he found it. In any case, it is indisputable that he built a lot since he carved his name into most of the projects. Or at least he ordered a lot of construction. He probably didn't haul very many bricks himself, but such is the way of things. In any case, we have about 50 buildings with his name on it and his own autobiography, which in classic Sumerian king fashion he carved in stone and displayed prominently in the town center. He takes credit for constructing something called the Great Oval, four temples, numerous adjacent structures, a major new city gate, something called the Edam, new levees along the river, new wall sections for the city, numerous new canals, nine that we know of, though he only seems to mention three in this Stella, and eight large statues of various gods or historic figures. On the back side, he discusses his foreign policy successes, particularly against the major city of Ur, as well as the perennial foe Umma, measuring his success primarily in the vast amount of loot and the important prisoners he brought home with him. When Ur Nansha passed away, he left the throne to his son Akurgal. Now, there's a lot of mystery surrounding Akurgal, in part because his reign was so short that he left very few records. He was apparently not the firstborn son, and it's uncertain why he was elevated over his brothers. A few years into his reign, the Umites decided to test the new king, and a major campaign ensued. We have no documentation about this campaign, but almost certainly it was bungled, resulting in the loss of a fair bit of territory of Gu'eden, and the failed king died in the fighting. Clearing the way for the star of today's show, his much more competent son to take the stage. By the time King Aenadam ascended to the throne, the economic policies of his grandfather had paid off for the city. He finished a few of the projects started by Ur Nansha, but mostly he was focused on the glorious task of conquest. Step one was to finally deal with the pesky Umites, so he began military preparations, particularly building up the small suburb of Gersu, adding walls to the settlement which, positioned forward close to the city of Umma and the disputed territory of Gu'eden, could act as a fortress. Fortunately for King Aenadam, we don't have to wait long for the outbreak of the war, since Umma attacks first. And with this campaign, we have a two-in-one of historical significance. First, we have the oldest written historical document in history, the Stella of Vultures, which, spoiler alert, celebrates Lagash's victory in the war. Second, in the Aenatum tablet, we have the oldest account of the details of the actual battle. So while Lagash has been building up, Umma has not been idle. But the preferred strategy of Umma was to spend resources making friends and hiring mercenaries. So with a mixed force that included adventurers all the way from Elam in the Iranian mountains and possibly mercenaries from other cities, he crossed a levee that marked the border into the undefended Gu'eden fields. 
He marches unopposed until he reaches a certain hill called the Hill of the Black Dog, a minor shrine to Ninurta, god of agriculture, hunting, and war, and patron god of Lagash. And when they stop for the night, the god Ninurta calls down at them from the heavens, saying, This land is mine, mortals. I have given it to my favorite king, Aenatum, and you must not raise your hand against him. At the same time, in mortal affairs, the army of Lagash was on the horizon and coming to do battle. So, having taken a favorable position atop a hill, Umma hunkered down and readied for the assault. The men of Lagash were not a mad, battle-lusted horde. They were citizens of the city, called up to do their duty, and likely quite eager to get revenge against the hated rival. They each wore a uniform helmet and carried spear and large shield. Some individuals would have been carrying battle axes as well, all of which would have been made of bronze and represented a great expense, sometimes one offset by the state, possibly in this case, though sometimes it was all personal equipment. The core battle line of Lagash moved forward in a shield wall, similar to the later Greek hoplite formations while at 300 yards, the archers would begin to pelt the opposing line. No word here on whether the Olamites and their mercenaries were fighting in the same style or in a more disorganized formation, but in either case, the objective was to soften them up with the hail of arrows as well as slings and javelins before closing to a melee. The men of Lagash would press their shield wall against the mass of the enemy line, plunging their spears forward, trying to catch holes in the enemy's own shield line. Those armed with battle axes would use them to claw away the armor from the men opposite them, attempting to make a breach in the line, while around back the nobles, including King Aenatum himself, circled the flanks in four-wheeled chariots. The goal of the charioteers was to pick off any enemies that got separated, to launch javelins into the undefended rear of the enemy, and to duel enemy chariots attempting to do the same. The forces met in battle, making a tremendous amount of noise. The clanging of spear and axe against shield and helmet was deafening, so much so that the battle crimes and screams of pain as blades bit home would have been inaudible except for the very closest of injured friends and foes. The Mesopotamian sun beat down upon the warriors as they exerted themselves to the maximum, carrying heavy bronze equipment, and the heat of the men surrounding them would only add to the sense of confined oppression. Behind each row, the second and possibly third rank would stab blindly around their comrades, mostly just adding pressure, not really close enough to aim anything, while each rank would push the man in front of him. Men who fell, either from injury or simply being overwhelmed by the scrum of heat and noise, would be trampled underfoot, often fatally adding to their injuries. And there are accounts in hoplite warfare of the press being so great that in the front row, corpses are held upright long after death by the force of five or more rows of men pushing, pushing from either side. In this crush, there is no sense of tactics or finesse. A man can hear nothing but noise and see nothing but what's directly in front of him. 
His two senses are his arms stabbing desperately, hunting with minimal range of motion to strike a blow home with enough force to kill, and the awareness of the press, either keeping him still or pushing him forward or back. The heat, the sound, it was a deafening white noise. As soon as the press pushed you back, the first thing to cross a man's mind was the question, were they losing? Was he going to die in this press of flesh, this hot and loud hell, because the men around him could not be relied upon? In the middle of all this, there was no way for the average fighter to know how things were going in the greater battle, until the moment that the enemy line suddenly evaporated before him. The collective chaos of individual efforts and cowardice collapsing into a full-on rout. And this was how it was experienced for the men of the front line of Lagash. One minute they are crushed and desperately fighting, the same as they've been doing for an unknowable amount of exhausting minutes before that. Then the next thing they know, the pressure before them lets up a bit. They're moving forward as the rear mass of the Umite line begins to flee. The Lagashites behind the front row continue pushing, and the front row finds themselves taking step after step, and in short order, there's no longer anyone in front to resist, and rows of men still behind pushing. Some trip here from exhaustion and are trampled by their own allies before the momentum of the formation can be halted. But once victory is clear, the winners charge, running down the vulnerable routers with a bloodlusted fury. King Aenatum on his chariot experienced the battle in a different fashion. The heat of the Sumerian sun was tempered by the wind moving at high speeds across the smooth terrain. There would not have been many chariots, a few dozen would have been massively expensive, and horses had not yet been domesticated, forcing them to rely perhaps on donkeys or a similar breed. But even one chariot is a terrifying weapon in this era. Loose formations of men, mostly skirmishers, were run down while Aenatum swung his sword and speared his lance into anyone he could reach, an untouchable god of war committing destruction against the human body thanks to the momentum provided by a moving chariot. Shields were just encumbrances when the combined force of lance and speed could punch through them. He could launch javelins at his leisure anywhere into the line that he desired, and if one part of the enemy's line started to weaken, he and his fellow charioteers could put ten or twenty arrows into the beleaguered foe, hoping to hasten their route. But it wasn't just easy street for the charioteers either. They were prime targets for the enemy archers, and of course, there were the opposing charioteers to contend with. While fighting, King Aenatum himself took an arrow straight in his eye in this battle. But like a true warrior, he simply snapped the arrow with the tip still lodged in his skull, and he continued the fight. When the rout came, the surviving charioteers were in the best position to take advantage of it, slaughtering literally hundreds as they dropped weapons and armor, hoping to run just a bit faster, but even if they hadn't been exhausted and encumbered, they would not have outrun the chariots. Though, while Aenatum slew every target that presented himself, his real goal was on his opposite number, and he bade his driver to pursue the king of Uma on his chariot. He seems to have caught up with him, grabbing him by the royal cloak as he fled, and Aenatum, still with arrow tip in his eye, mind you, engaged in single combat. 
though apparently the enemy king was able to escape in the end. The battle settled down after this, and the pursuit called off. Aeonatum presumably got some sort of medical treatment for his eye, and his soldiers all returned to Black Dog Hill. No numbers are given for the troops present, but the vulture Stella claims they collected 3,600 dead, nearly all men of Umma and their allies, and the funeral piles were so high the men needed ladders to pile bodies on top of each other. The king performed rites for the dead for both cities, giving a certain amount of respect to the dead to prevent supernatural displeasure following the battle, and finally, they were all able to rest following what was likely the most exhausting day of these citizen soldiers' lives. But they could not rest for long, since Aeonatum moved them quickly while the army of Umma was still scattered. They marched on the city itself. There was no resistance until reaching the outskirts of town, but the defenders of Umma were overwhelmed again and were pursued deep into the city. King Aeonatum, still high atop his chariot, rode down the fleeing king of Umma, ramming a spear into his face, killing him instantly in the middle of his own city. And that very line was to be used as a taunt in the future, with a future king declaring in a treaty that if Umma objected to Lagash's terms, the objector would be killed in the middle of his own city. With this, they were victorious over Umma, but the hated rival still had too many friends to be burned down outright, and power projection in these times was too complicated to think about a proper annexation as we would consider it. And so a treaty was drawn up and recorded in stone on the Stella of Vultures, a stone monument erected at the newly declared and much less favorable to Umma border. A new king was raised for Umma, one whose ascension was explicitly endorsed by Aeonatum, and one assumes that a fair bit of treasure was carted away from the defeated city, though I don't think it's explicitly stated, despite being a fairly standard practice at the time. Additionally, the Ummites were allowed to continue farming on their section of the disputed Gu Eden territory, but they were required to pay a portion of the crop each harvest as interest on the loan of the land, a deeply humiliating requirement for the city. But with the defeat of Umma, Aeonatum now had every advantage in regional politics. He is sitting on a hoard of treasure stolen from his enemies. He's proven himself to be a skilled battlefield commander, and though his troops have all returned home at the end of the war, their successful experience will stay with them in subsequent callouts to campaign. And as an added bonus, it seems most of the other cities of Sumer were at the same time weakened by various unrelated events. And so over the next few campaigning seasons, he set out against new targets with expeditions to Uruk, Ur, Kish, and some Elamite cities. These would have taken similar form to the war against Umma, likely a single large battle followed by an assault on the town with plundering and a promise of submission before returning home. The year after sacking Kish, the northern city of Akshak, very near modern Baghdad, decided that surely Lagash's strength was exhausted from this annual campaigning and got very close to the city early in the campaign season, but Aeonatum was able to turn them back and chase them all the way back to their city, which was very far away by Mesopotamian standards, 
inflicting heavy losses. With this, he decided that the goddess Ishtar had fallen in love with him and declared himself king of Kish, a pair of affectations that suggested he saw himself, at least for the moment, as the regional hegemon of Sumer. This was to be the high watermark of Lagash's power. Quite content with all this power, he used his annual labor levy the next year to construct a massive canal, but in the middle of construction, a coalition of his defeated foes attacked. First, the Elamites from the east invaded, pushing deep into the territory and only barely being pushed back, with an attack later from the north by the combined forces of rebellious Kish and Akshak. The next year, the Elamites attacked again and were again followed up by the northerners, this time with even more northern cities joining the anti-Lagash coalition. With this victory, he was able to enjoy a few years' peace, finally managing to complete his massive canal project. But Aenatum finally met his end. For a few years later, there was another unnamed conflict in which he probably perished in the fighting, and his brother En-Anatum took up the reins of the military, leading them out of the disaster. When he walked back into Lagash at the head of the army, none of Aenatum's sons were able to contest their uncle's new claim of kingship. And this is where we will leave the city of Lagash. Having come to great wealth through military conflict, but now fighting to hold on to as much of it as they could, and now lacking the skilled commander that had seen them through until now. I will note that while Lagash is unusual in that we have more records than normal describing its activity, there is no reason for us to think that the way it conducted itself was any different than the other three dozen major cities that rose and fell during this early dynastic period. Each summer, they would call up their laborers to either attempt a raid against another city or to build a new construction of some sort, and that was the major effort for the year. Aside from the fortunes of that major effort and the risk of being raided in turn, life would go on more or less unchanged year to year, with the differences between Sumerian cities being apparently pretty minor. But though we're done for today, there will be more Lagash to come. Part 2 will follow the latter half of the dynasty of Lagash, En-Anatum and his sons, then on to the last handful of kings. So join us next time, where we will see corruption and justice battle it out for the soul of the city. Thank you for listening.